What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Most of us have gotten pretty far by moving fast, doing more and striving for the next achievement. But when you're called upon to lead, it's time to look in the mirror, face your hard stuff and grow into your full self or you'll never lead others to do the same. To get there, you might need a reboot. Jerry Colonna is an executive coach who uses the skills he learned as a venture capitalist to help entrepreneurs. This episode has Sean discussing a lot of the struggles he personally faces with Jerry, asking some very provoking questions to get to the root. You will not want to miss this. Each week, so many amazing podcasts come out. Unfortunately, we just don't have the time to listen to them all. That's why I love podcast notes. What Podcast Notes does is they write up some of the top podcasts and top episodes with their tips, takeaways, and quotes so you get everything you need out of that episode without having to spend all that time listening. They also have an unbelievable weekly newsletter. And this weekly newsletter has the takeaways from the top business, health, and lifestyle podcasts. It's one of the few newsletters I subscribe to and certainly think you guys would love checking it out. So remember, it's podcastnotes.org and also subscribe to that weekly newsletter they're putting out. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Jerry, welcome to What Got You There. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's a beautiful day here in Boulder. I watched the sunrise and um, I've got a cup of coffee with me, so I'm, I'm good to go. Few things more enjoyable than an unbelievable morning in Boulder. I used to live in downtown Denver and would travel to Boulder quite frequently, so I'm very familiar. I'm glad you're enjoying the aesthetics there. But I want to know, typically, how do you start your day? What does it look like? Uh, groggily. Um, uh, typically I wake usually without an alarm somewhere between five and five 30. And, uh, which is, which is odd when you are shifting time zones and you still wake up between five and five 30, regardless of the time zone. And then, uh, I make coffee. Um, that's kind of my ritual. Um, and then I journal. And uh, I journal and then I meditate. And this morning I was meditating on the back porch, which is not something I normally do. Normally I meditate. I have a, actually a dedicated meditation room. Um, and I'll journal anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour, and hour and a half. And so my morning ritual takes about two hours. Uh, I was a little cramped this morning. But uh, it normally takes about an hour and a half to two hours before I, I really do things like think about my day and look at my phone and all of that nonsense. 
the journaling process. I, I'm always intrigued by people's process. Mine's been one that's been refined throughout the years. What does your journaling process look like when you sit down with your notebook or your journal? What do you start doing? Well, I've been journaling since I was about 13, um, pretty much every day. I mean, there were long stretches of my life where I wasn't, but pretty much every day uh, I journal. And I typically do a kind of quick inventory. It reminds me a lot of what I do with meditation, which is, you know, in the first few breaths of meditation and sitting posture, I will just sort of scan, like, how am I doing? What's going on? And I'm, and what I do at that, so when I open up a, a page, most often I complete the sentence that begins with right now I'm feeling um, or some variation of that. Um, I might then go into a dream that I just had or I might sort of do a kind of diary yesterday, this is what was going on. And it feels like a very... Um, completing process it it it, it uh, helps me process all that i'm carrying you know positive and negative happy and sad you know it just feels like it's a very clearing process it's such a great way to put it that it really does sum up i feel like many times how i feel once i'm journaling and you bring up the power of questions and questions is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout this conversation but a lot of questions i receive and i'm always dealing with is the rest of the day. It seems like you've done a great job structuring those first two hours. But what about when the chaos starts to ensue? Is there anything you typically have set up ongoing throughout the late morning, afternoon, and evening? You mean like a, a, in a ritualized way? Like, you know, at lunch I'm doing X or, you know, midday kind of thing? I guess my question stems from many times there's just a million things thrown at me and I can just spend the entire day consumed in, in reactionary things. Do you schedule time alone for yourself at other points in the day so you can reflect, think through problems, anything along those lines? Uh, I typically don't, um, although uh, you're, you're, uh, there's two reactions I have. The, the first is to go back to meditation for a moment. Okay, um, so why do we meditate, right? We meditate for life off the cushion, not for life on the cushion. And sometimes uh, meditation is so popular right now, um, I get a little nervous because there seems to be so much emphasis on technique and it has the unintended uh, consequence of getting people to focus on those 30 minutes that they may be sitting in, in a lotus position you know, in the posture. And that is important, but that's not the point. The point is to strengthen the muscle that you're going to use throughout the day, which is that when life is thrown at you at, you know, four hours after your meditation session, you're able to reach back in without a pre-planned experience and take a breath and say, okay, what just happened? Oh, I'm triggered. I'm going into my old pattern. I need to take a walk right now rather than perhaps setting up these breaks throughout the day. Now, that was my first reaction. Second reaction I had was I really, really resonated with your question about taking some time alone. I'm a profound introvert. I'm not shy, 
I enjoy people and I enjoy being um, meeting people, um, but I am often overwhelmed by larger groups of people. And for me, large is anything more than three. <laughs> and so uh, what I think that I have hit upon without a lot of conscious thought about it is that I spend a lot of time alone um, and that feels really nourishing. And so it's not something that I've consciously said, okay, from four to six every afternoon, I'm alone. It just evolves. So yesterday, for example, I had two calls scheduled with friends to do sort of a check-in. And I woke up and I just needed time alone. So I wrote to them and I said, can we reschedule? I'm good. I just need time alone. And so that's what I took. I, I, I hope that answers your question. It was a very full answer. No, I, I love the answer. It really helps me think through things and, and understand. Well, I guess I'll circle back to understanding, strengthening your muscle. Mm. So that way you're able to adapt and evolve with the situations at hand. So how far along do you feel like you are in terms of strengthening your muscle to be able to handle new scenarios thrown at you? I love the question. So let's go back to the word practice or even the word art. Okay. Um, practice implies it's something that we do without actually achieving the outcome. And I think that that's a really, really powerful and liberating framing. Art implies uh, experimentation. It implies uh, moving and trying things without, uh, well, art as a, as a verb, not as a noun, right? It, it implies a kind of trying without necessarily focusing on achieving something. And so what I think the muscle that I have practiced well, and you know, spoiler alert, the last line of my book is something like, and with that, I mastered the art of growing up. And, and, the, and, the, and the word is growing up. I don't say, and with that, I've grown up. Hmm. And so to go back to your question, uh, I think my muscles for trying and practicing the art of being human are pretty good right now, but I'm not there yet. And what's most important, I'm never going to be there. And that makes me laugh and smile because it gives me the freedom to fail without producing shame. It's a fun journey, isn't it? It is indeed. It is. You get to you get to um, uh, work on things that are important with a kind of consciousness that allows a bit of humility and humor and love to come into the process. So, at this point in your life, what what are those big pillars? What are you viewing as most important that you're spending the most amount of thought on? Uh, my relationships. I mean, as it, you know, you can't, we've got the video turned off, but I'm looking off to the left and I'm staring at um, pictures of my kids who are all, by the way, adults, not in the pictures, right? In the pictures, they're like, you know, munchkins, but um, rugrats. Um, but thinking about those, you know, last night, my oldest son and I went for a long drive uh, just out outside of Boulder just to appreciate the sunset and just to talk. Um, so relationships are important. Um, taking care of my health, um, making sure that I am 
working on the issues that hold me back and create my own sense of suffering. You know, we have a phrase in the company that I think is a good motto for life in general. Um, and it, we've taken it from the poet David White, which is good work done well for the right reasons. And I kind of like to use that as a guide for each day. Good work done well for the right reasons. And the right reasons are typically things like kindness, compassion, a desire for my own internal growth. Um, uh, because I know that that's the surest way to contribute well to the world. You know, when I pass, as will happen at some point, I want people to say, you know, here was a good man. He did, he did his best. And so that's the commitment. That's, that's what I'm striving for. A lot stood out in those past few minutes. Two things that are, are really standing out for me is you mentioned holding you back mm. and just that desire for internal growth. Mm -hmm. So when you're assessing yourself and that desire for internal growth, how are you doing that? Is it a, a very meditative practice that you're sitting back and kind of assessing the 30,000 foot view of your life? It, 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 uh, your question implies a kind of intellectualized consciousness around it. It's a little bit more felt sense than that. Like, so for example, at two or three o'clock in the morning, I woke up from a dream last night um, with some anxiety. And um, what I did was in my journaling session this morning, I noted the anxiety and I noted the dream and I'll continue to work with the dream because the dream is a kind of a gift for my unconscious telling me this is where you are, are this is what you're holding, this is what you're feeling. Because oftentimes we're disconnected from the feeling and noting the anxiety that I felt overnight um, enabled me to spend some time with the content of my life, right? Which is where I would say is holding me back. And so I have, my oldest son is moving uh, from Colorado um, and I'll miss him. And that's the feeling. And I am super proud um, and I'll miss him. And so allowing myself to explore that um, creates the space for me to be able to respond and be connected in a more human way. Um, but doing so means that I have to touch upon feelings that are, hmm, that hurts. But there's love behind that feeling. And so it's a great little spot to go to. Can you expand upon going to that spot? Sure. Um, I think that we're socialized to avoid pain. In fact, you know, um, you know, I'm a Buddhist, and um, the Four Noble Truths, which is what the Buddha awakened to from his first profound experience of meditation. The second, the first two noble truths are really interesting. The first is that life is filled with dukkha, suffering. And the second noble truth is that that which we do to push away suffering increases suffering. Now, if you just, just stay with those two thoughts for a moment, think about how our societies are organized, how our belief systems are organized. Like, Think about 
um, I know a lot of your listeners are entrepreneurs. We believe that there's some magic land out there, some magic startup playbook driven land where nobody's suffering. We believe that. We're socialized to think that that place exists. And as long as we hold on to that belief, we actually suffer. Because our firm hope in the belief that being a leader means I don't have to grow actually increases the pain of being a leader. Just like my experience of not wanting to touch into feelings of anger, feelings of sadness, feelings of shame, feelings of guilt. Yet every one of those feelings, there's a wisdom behind them. And, you know, it's a hard process because you have to feel the anger without acting out the anger. And you do that with very, very curious questions like, wow, why does this hurt? Oh, because it reminds me of when I was seven and such and such thing happened to me. Huh, wait, I'm not seven anymore. The feeling is still there. But the whole circumstance is different. How can I grow from that point? So I'll, I'll pause. I know I said a lot of words there. So, <laughs> no, a lot to think about right there. And I'm thinking a lot about the questions. Mm. And is that something that it's more important you're asking yourself, or is this someone else asking you these questions and having someone who's capable of, of going deeper with you? Uh, it's a great question. I think that uh, one of the one of the one of the reasons why community can be so powerful for us is that uh, you and I could go for a walk one day and I can ask you a question that allows you to sort of go deeper within yourself. And that process creates an intimate bond, especially if you turn around and ask me a similar question. And then all of a sudden, there's this connecting point that happens. Um, once we are sort of practicing that art, um, we can ask ourselves those questions. Or conversely, you could start by asking yourself those questions. In the book, I end each chapter with a series of questions that are designed to just get prompt people to explore deeper. If they stop at those questions, they're not fully um, experiencing what it is that um, is available to them. So the whole idea is questions lead to more questions, which lead to more questions. Now, if we just pause and hold on to that thought, there's something really important that, that is behind all of this, which is, wait, Jerry, are you saying you should ask questions even though you might not get the answers? Yes. That's right. We live in an outcome-oriented world. We live in a world in which our worthiness is measured by what we have accomplished. And the challenge with that is that if I start to ask these probing questions, these curiosity, these curious questions, this open, honest questions, and I don't arrive at an answer, the danger is that I will judge myself poorly. I will judge myself a failure 
because I haven't figured out the answer. Uh, which reminds me of that famous Rilke question, his advice to the young poet in Letters to a Young Poet, in which he says, live the questions now. What he's really saying is there's a power in contemplating questions. And maybe, you know, I just gave you a very long response that here's a simpler response. If you were to journal with a set of questions, a question like, um, uh, what do I believe to be true about being an adult? Okay. If you were to journal that and then go back a year later and journal the exact same question, I guarantee you, your answer would be different. And that difference is what's interesting because that's growth. But if we approach that experience saying, I have to come up with the once and for all answer, we will then end up exacerbating the anxiety and the suffering and the self-criticism that is such a hallmark of our experience as human beings right now. You make it sound much simpler, I feel like, than, than we make it out to be so many times. So, <laughs> it is simple. <laughs> I mean, any recommendations, Jerry, for someone who, who has a very difficult time asking themselves those questions, but more importantly, letting the question be yeah. and continue on with more question yeah. as opposed to looking to that finality? Yeah. Um, thank you for making me laugh, Sean. Um, what I often say is, it's not complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. What makes it complicated are our expectations. And so if you can relax the expectations, which are internally generated, right? We're the ones who are saying to ourselves in this experience, we're supposed to have the answers. Now, we may have internalized messages from our parents, from the society. In fact, I guarantee you we've internalized those messages from our larger society. But they are internal, which means that they are under our control. And if we can relax those expectations and realize that we're going to ask ourselves a whole bunch of questions and that even if we manage to come up with an answer, the answer will shift then we're liberated from this notion that we have to ha- we have to have measurable progress every single step of the way that every single day i'm supposed to be marginally better than i was yesterday <sighs> that's 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 like a jail and that that i think exacerbates the suffering you know, um, it means we miss the beautiful sunrise. It means we miss the, the, the whiff of lavender in the air. It means we miss the smile on our son's face when, as he did last night, um, he let loose on my very, very fast car and experienced being thrown back into his seat and accelerating. Shh, don't tell the police. Right? I mean, 
I don't ever want to miss those moments. Not, 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 not even just the moment of the acceleration, but the little smirk on his face when he felt what I've been feeling because I've been driving this car for months, right? I mean, to me, that's the point of it all. Those little moments. That's why we strive so hard. That's why we work our tail off. That's why we build companies. That's why we, so that we can have those experiences. You've talked a lot about your kids. I just celebrated my son's first birthday. And I feel Mazel like I've never- <laughs> well, well, thank you. <laughs> I feel like I've never been at a place where I've worked harder. And I'm assuming a lot has to do with, with setting an example for him making him proud, setting a foundation up. How do you, how do you balance those moments? Because while you were in the car driving with your son, my son is pushing his Mickey truck and I do not ever want to miss those moments. Mm. But at the same time, I've got to provide for him. Right there, I right have- there, right there, Sean. Right there. But at the same time, what's that? What happened? expectations Mm. just stay right there no judgment just notice that moment what's your son's first name daxton daxton daxton's on the ground he's pushing his mickey truck you're noticing his mickey truck all of a sudden a paternalistic voice comes in and says take him take care of him Keep him safe, warm, and happy. Be a good father. You're with him. Be a good father. The duty and the presence. Is there a tension there? At times. Mm. So at times, I can fully enjoy that moment for everything that it is. And then there are those other times, and I feel like it's times where I lose hold of my day, mm. that, that tension is there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I'm going to speak a little bit like your older brother because my children are 29, 27, and 22. Um, so I'm at that end of the spectrum. You're at the beginning of that. Here's a framing I would suggest you hold on to. Be the adult that you would like Daxton to be when he's, I'm imagining you're in your 30s. Yes, I'm 32. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so when Daxton is 32, I want you to be the man that you want Daxton to be at 32 and hold that frame. And so one of the challenges is, you know, I, I talk about leadership as an opportunity to grow up. Um, here's the truth of what you're experiencing. Being a parent is an opportunity to grow up. We're called forth to be the adults that we needed as children. It's not to say that the adults who raised us were bad or good. They just were who they were. But we are now presented with an opportunity to grow even further, to be even more Right, that bittersweet tenderness that you feel around your son, use that as motivation to grow into your fullest self. 
And that means holding the tension between love and presence and duty. And that duty um, is, um, it can overwhelm us. It can drive us to work harder than our children actually want us to work, which is converse, perverse, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing this to create love, safety, and belonging for our children. And yet what we're doing, we may at times do, is actually undermine their sense of safety, their sense of love because of our lack of availability to them. And so it's simple, but it's damn hard, right? What's hard is holding the balance. Let's call it between presence and the call to take care. And by the way, this is something I still have to struggle to balance because there's a whole world of people that would like me to help them. And I get affirmation and approbation out of being able to step in and take care of them. Modeling for my children what it means to be a good citizen in the world, to compassionately be there for someone else. And yet I need to also be there for them. That's such powerful framing. Mm -hmm. No wonder you've been coined the CEO whisperer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm intrigued, and you mentioned being pulled in in multiple directions, and I I just saw what you were able to do for me so quickly. Mm. So, So what do you think it is about what you're able to do? Why can you do this so well and pose these questions in such a way that just seems so simple but goes so deep? Um. Well, the first thing I have to do is is acknowledge what, something that you just said, which is that I do it well. Um, if I may, I don't know. I suppose I do it well. Um, at this point, I, I can internalize that. Um, but let's drop the the adjective or the adjectival phrase, right? Do it so well. How do I do what I do? Why do I do what I do? Well, for me... Um, what occurs to me is that I listen. So if we go back to that moment before, the moment where I just sort of yelled into the phone and said, stop right there. <laughs> it was the moment of the, the word, but, that word. And my body winced because you were enjoying this beautiful memory of Daxton pushing his Mickey truck or his car. And I had this picture of you hopefully on the ground next to him going vroom, 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 right? And the sweetness of that. And it was interrupted by the but. But you better grow up, buddy boy. You better be, right? All of that that follows from that word but. Now, you know, in coach facilitating schools, they always teach you to to work with teams and to help them insert the word and in place of the word but. And it's a cognitive thing, but I'll do that right now. I want to be on the ground with Daxton pushing the Mickey truck, going vroom, vroom. And... I want to keep him safe. And all of a sudden, what we do is we remove the tension from that place. Now you ask, how do I do that? 
I do that by listening, actually tuning into how my body was reacting. Reacting. If we go back to the meditation and we go back to journaling for a moment, strengthening the muscles of paying attention to my own body allows me to then turn around and pay attention to you. There was a hitch in your voice when you said, but. And I've heard that hitch and that tension tens of thousands of times in my career. And that's the moment to pay attention to. So that's what I do. When did you discover your ability to do this well? Because your career did not begin this way. I think that uh, this um, intense listening, conscious listening, which is what I would I would describe. It's like a, it's like a full body listening, actually developed as a childhood survival strategy, because uh, I had to navigate. Uh, my mother's mental illness and my father's alcoholism. And uh, it created a tension in my body where I was kind of, I was always hypervigilant, paying attention to everybody else's feelings. Um, that experience is quite familiar to people who grow up with parents who are, um, who struggle with their own emotional well being and their mental health. Um, it's one of the ways in which we navigate the experience. I think what is different about me was that at some point um, it became less of a um, an obstacle in my life and more as a, what I often refer to as a superpower. And I think I began practicing it even as a reporter in my early 20s. Because I, if I look back, I can see conversations I had with prominent figures in the technology industry where I was hearing things that other reporters were not hearing. And so then therefore following up with questions that other reporters were not following up with. And then therefore getting answers that no one else was getting. And then over the next 20, 30 years, I just refined and refined that process to the point where it's the most natural thing in the world to me. That must be a fun place to be at where it's so natural at this point. Uh, it, it, it is, and, and um, I'll acknowledge that it can be really annoying for the people <laughs> in my life. <laughs> my daughter once famously said on Facebook about me, yeah, can you imagine what it's like to, to grow up with a man who asks you questions you don't want to answer? <laughs> <laughs> So any advice then to those people who are similar, who, who, who probe those closest to them with certain questions that might be incredibly difficult and could create tension in that relationship? Yeah. So uh, remember the phrasing I used before, good work done well for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. Uh, the for the right reasons is a really important uh, experience here. Uh, sometimes I will use that superpower to defend against what I perceive to be an attack. And so then it becomes prosecutorial. Um, sometimes I will use that uh, to ward off self-inquiry. Okay, And so my obligation and the obligation of anyone who is 
looking to sort of enhance this capacity. The obligation is to be, um, you know, acutely uh, responsible in the deployment, um, which means that if someone comes back to you and says, um, "Hey, back off," I'm not your coaching client. Then you got to listen, or even more. And I didn't ask permission of you. One of the nice things to do would be to sort of say, "Hey, can I give you some, an observation, or can I um, uh, respond with a question that might be helpful?" Right, and to create a little bit of permission around that. That's something that I'm still working on because my my impulse tends to be to jump in a little quickly in those instances. What gets you the most excited when working? It doesn't necessarily need to be a client. It could just be a loved one. What is that moment that really just makes your heart beat a a little faster? Uh, Can I tell you a quick story? Uh, And it's from a client engagement. Um, uh, Last week, um, I did a fireside chat with a former client, Jeff Lawson, who is the founder and CEO of Twilio. And uh, he had read my book, and um, I think we last worked together maybe two years ago. Um, uh, but we had worked together for a long time, and and in the early early days of the company, we began working together. And at one point, he um, he had read the book, and he would said, "Oh, I get it. You know, now I understand why you never gave me answers, but you asked me all these questions all the time." <laughs> And I said, I said, Jeff, you had no idea how much I wanted to give you the answers. Um, but I knew that that my job was to ask questions so that you could arrive at your own answers. And he sort of looked up because it was such a pain in the ass. But now I understand what it was you were doing. You were helping me grow. And so you asked the, 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 the moment that, that I love. It's like I love that moment where I got to look back and I just felt such deep pride and in understanding that his growth was not something I did. His growth was something he did. But I was a witness to that. I was a questioning uh, companion on that. And that made me not responsible for his success or failure, but a deep, deep soul companion. And that just felt um, indescribably beautiful. Is the importance for you giving the person the space to discover on their own? Yes. Yes. See, when we give answers, we actually undermine the person's belief system that they have the answers themselves. And our job, our our work to do in relationship is to support each other. It's not to make it happen for each other. And and listen, my young father friend, (laughs) this is something that, that will be hard for you because we watch our children stumble and sometimes we do have to step in and say, this is how you tie your shoe. But we also are really, our job is to support them, not only in tying their own shoes, 
but in discovering how to tie their shoes. Because there will be a day when you won't be there. Or you'll be there in an internalized way, not physically there. And, and, and you know, our job is, as parents is to leave the world with adults. Our job as leaders is to leave the company with leaders and other adults. That's good work done well for the right reasons. Once again, you're you're able to say such a, a simple phrase that's so powerful. And, and going back to children, one of the things I love most about being a father is just seeing that childlike fascination in their discovering. Mm. Uh, and it could even just be a box. That cardboard box <laughs> is endless in terms of, of what it could be to that child. Mm. Do you find yourself still having that childlike fascination with things? Yeah. Yeah. It tends to be um, out and about around uh, the natural world. But yeah, I do. Yeah, it's 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 fun fun to see that in adults and and the interesting places that might lead to mm. when when they go about the world in those ways. I'm also thinking about what you were just talking about your time with with certain CEOs and entrepreneurs. Are are there vast commonalities you're seeing amongst these people in recent times? Uh, yeah, you know, to go back to an earlier statement. Um, Many, especially first-time CEOs, uh, walk around with a belief system that um, there's a secret list of answers, there's a secret book, and that the world is just keeping it from them, and uh, and that they are not either worthy of or smart enough to know those answers. And so they furrow their brow and they dig in and they sort of say, you know, I just have to work hard to get this all right. And what I would say is I appreciate the love that's behind that, that, that wish for learning. Um, but there is no secret textbook that has all the answers. There are some really, really good sources of information about those things. Um, but in a similar fashion, um, if, if I were to write a textbook, for example, and say, these are the 15 things to do, uh, I would kind of leave you bereft because you could only internalize one or two of them. And then you would walk around absolutely convinced that you are shitty as a CEO. And, and, um, I can you know, I think you can collect a lot of opinions and use that as data, but data and wisdom are not the same thing. And wisdom uh, has to come out of your own unique experience. And that's what makes that leadership journey so hard and ultimately so rewarding. With the leadership journey, this is something I've dealt with and I've seen others around me, the the combination of ego and optimism. And I, I'm trying to discover that. Mm. It seems like there's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of CEOs who are incredibly optimistic and they almost don't think things can't happen or could be impossible. And I'm wondering, how do you combo that optimistic view 
but don't let the ego blind you. Mm. Um, maybe seven or eight years ago, I was I we uh, I frequently used a phrase uh, pathologically optimistic, um, and I think we're hitting upon the same thing, which is that. Um, it, it's it's a way of using optimism actually as a way to delude oneself and to not uh, soberly assess our lives. Um, and if you so so imagine if you will that that what I just said is true and that's the condition that we're talking about. Um, what's the feeling behind that pathology. Well, it's a fear of failure. Oh, okay. So if I can address the fear of failure, I can arrive at a healthy optimism. Because healthy optimism goes like this. Um, What we're about to attempt launching a business, launching a new product or service is hard. We may fail. And if we fail, we are A-OK as human beings. We may stumble. We may have to work doubly hard to put more money in the bank and that sort of thing. That's not to be taken lightly. But it doesn't mean my self-worth is shattered. And I have assembled a good group of people. Our ideas are smart. Our thesis, our questions are sound. Let's go for it. And if we fail, we'll pick up the pieces and figure out where we go from there. That feels like healthy optimism. And the turn is... Letting go of an unhealthy attachment to achieving an outcome. Allowing whatever outcome will happen. And being convinced in the belief of the uh, values of yourself and your team so that you can go forward. I'm assuming you did this assessment or a similar one over the past year. Your book, Reboot has been out for a few months now. Can, can you describe what it's like leading up to the, the launch of the book and then what it's been like the following months? <laughs> yeah, you touch upon some, uh, you know, a really good nerve there. Um, in terms of leading up to the, the launch of the book, uh, one of my dear friends and, a, and, and an incredible supporter in the whole process um, someone I've known since 1996. God, 23 years. Anyway, uh, Seth Godin, early on in the process, said to me, um, talked about how uh, writing uh, and being a writer can expose uh, a kind of nerve nerve endings. And so... And he talked about the thinness of with which writers sort of approach the world and the ease with which they can feel um, judged and criticized. And so um, 
there were several parts of this process that were hard. One part was the writing, which meant really excavating my experiences, my memories, um, my belief systems. That was hard. Um, and then turning it in and working with my editor and, you know, not hearing back for a week to two weeks. And, you know, I was very, very lucky because I had an amazing editor who just responded so well and quickly. But still, like the stories I would tell myself, which was, you know, um, she's rethinking the whole contract. She's completely decided that, you know, I'm an idiot as a writer and she can't figure out how to tell me. Right. So all that's going on. And then, um, and then the manuscript is done and it's being edited and all that's going on. And then I have to begin the process of building the startup known as the book, which is a completely different experience of like talking to lots and lots of different people about the experience of that. Um, and then, you know, worrying about like for me, I wanted to do a good job and I wanted to hit the numbers, not because you know, of my own, I guess there's some ego involved in, in it, but because I wanted to prove that the publisher was right in believing in me, right? And so there's, there's a very regressed childlike belief system, right? So there was that experience. Then the book is out in, in the wild and there's a completely different experience, which um, every day, I'm getting people write to me in one form or another saying some version of this book has changed my life. And not just because I'm giving off a list of leadership principles, those are implicit in the book, but because of the very thing that I set out to do, which was to show up and be present myself in the book. Now, it's not a book for everybody. I, I, I understand that. It's a challenging book in the sense that it, it will challenge you to grow, for sure. But those people who are sort of leaning into that are coming back to me and saying, you know, not only is this a book for me as a CEO, but I've given this book to my children. I've given this book to my family. I've given this book to my friends. And that experience I wasn't prepared for. The, the sense that there is this deep connection that people are feeling, um, it's quite moving. It's a little scary for this introvert. Um, uh, my friend and mentor Parker Palmer said a few weeks after the book was launched, I was talking to him about the experience and he said, you know, Jerry, you have to understand there are 10,000 copies of you out in the world now. And people are reacting to that. And uh, they're having their own experiences with your words. Um, and taking that in, it's, 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 it's not unlike what you will experience when Daxton is older, which is you feel the connection to this, this person, this thing. And then it starts to have its own life. And I'm watching and being a witness to that unfolding. Um, in a way I, I never anticipated. So that's a pretty powerful line from Parker. Ten thousand copies of you out in the world. Yeah, I, I can only imagine grasping that. And then, like you mentioned, this is a a constantly evolving thing you now have. I have just a couple quick questions for you that I, I've been very intrigued to ask you. 
and you've worked with a lot of talented individuals in the past. When's the last time you've stopped in your tracks just being impressed by someone? This doesn't have to be someone you've worked with. It's about seeing talent and just being truly impressed by the capabilities of someone. Uh, when was the last time? Um, Thursday. <laughs> just a few days ago. Today is a Monday. Um, in all seriousness, I work with a company. Um, uh, I've been working with the CEO for a number of years. So I'll say four years. And I've been involved with the senior leadership team now for about eight months and just helping them grow as a team. And a few months back, um, I started working with two individuals in the team who were having tension. And um, one of the two, I'm gonna I'm gonna describe him as a young man in his uh, late twenties. Came in and uh, my preconceived notion of the challenge was that he he was really struggling to understand what his role was. There was a lack of clarity, lack of there's a lot of conflict avoidance in the organization. And uh, he sits down and he says, you know, I've been thinking a lot about our meeting, and um, I listened to your podcast. And he named one of the podcasts, and I was reading your book, and I realized that I am the source of a lot of lack of clarity because I'm afraid to clarify what my role is. Because if I do, then I'm afraid I will fail. And my jaw dropped because that's the kind of insight that uh, is exactly what I'm hoping to prompt. And then uh, we had this amazing conversation. And then literally just last week, I was back visiting the company. And it was a similar kind of simultaneous recognition of the reality of the, of the conditions of the company and his own contribution to the kind of the mess that is a normal mess. And I looked at him and I said, I can't wait for this guy to be a CEO. Because there's growth right there. That's leadership. And he feels a complete and total mess. And I just smile and I know I can see 10 years into the future when he's going to be running a kick-ass company uh, where people get to do the best work of their lives. Because he is willing to look fiercely in the mirror and to borrow another phrase from Parker, be fierce with reality. This is so fun for me getting to have these conversations, ask a question, have no idea where it's going, <laughs> and then to hear a story like that. Mm. I, I've got one final one for you before we wrap up. What's the kindest thing someone's done for you? Mm. Well, what comes to mind, there are many, many. Can I just give you a recent kind thing versus the kindest? I'd assume you'd go with, yeah. with a recency, so yes. Um, so... Um, a few weeks back, just after the book launch, um, I was struggling. I was having a hard time. And I reached out to a dear friend um, who doesn't need me to be their coach and doesn't need me to be wise. He can, I could just be a complete mess with him. And we had a video call because he's not local. And I was just a mess. And he just listened 
And he was with me. And I cleared the air and I felt better. And about a week later, he just sent me a note and he said, just checking in, how are you doing? And I was in the midst of being there for so many other people. And that little act of kindness, um, that's all it was, was just like, hey, how are you doing? Just checking in. I know the world wants a lot from you and just want you to know I'm here. That, that, that just means so much. It's, it's, like, um, it's like a hand on the shoulder that says, I see you. I hear you. I love you. That's what it felt like. I don't think there's a greater closing loop on our conversation mm. than that final minute. So thank you for that. That, that was truly remarkable and incredible. I, I know you've got the, the listeners engaged much like myself right now. I know you have a lot going on with the business, the book, the podcast, and some of the other endeavors you have. Where do you want the listeners going? Where can they stay connected with you, Jerry? Um, uh, they can either go to the book website, which is rebootbyjerry.com or reboot.io, which is the company, uh, site. And if they go to the company site, one of the, one of the nice things about having built a company and then the book (laughs) is, um, there's a tremendous number of resources available to people from our own podcast to we've actually developed free courses for people, um, that can really help them in their journey. And nothing makes me happier than to know that there's there are people, even if they can't afford individual coaching services and all, that they're out there getting help just just by doing some of the stuff that we do for free and make it available for people. So those are the best ways to 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 follow what we're doing and 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 really use that to grow in their own process. Well, thank you for making that available to people. As always, that will be in the show notes and even more on Jerry and the work he's doing at whatgotyouthere.com. But Jerry, I cannot thank you enough for joining us and and taking me on my own journey mm. in, into fatherhood. So this this came at a great moment in my life. So thank you for that as well. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for such compelling questions. And make sure you get down on that carpet and push those cars around. Vroom, vroom. You got it. Each week, so many amazing podcasts come out. Unfortunately, we just don't have the time to listen to them all. That's why I love Podcast Notes. What Podcast Notes does is they write up some of the top podcasts and top episodes with their tips, takeaways, and quotes so you get everything you need out of that episode without having to spend all that time listening. They also have an unbelievable weekly newsletter. And this weekly newsletter has the takeaways from the top business, health, and lifestyle podcasts. It's one of the few newsletters I subscribe to and certainly think you guys would love checking it out. So remember, it's podcastnotes.org and also subscribe to that weekly newsletter they're putting out. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. 
Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoy the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you?